Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's go, Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters. Presented by Syracuse.com. College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen. Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the NCAA Senior Vice President for Basketball, Dan Gavitt. In his position, Gavitt is overseeing college basketball's attempt to navigate a season in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. How will teams avoid long shutdowns and play as many games as possible? And how important is it for the sport's future to hold the NCAA tournament next March? Listen in as Dan and I discuss the challenges that are being faced this season. Okay, we're joined here on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast by the NCAA Senior Vice President, Dan Gavitt. Dan, how are you? And I know that's a loaded question these days. (laughs) I'm great. It's good to be with you. Everything's going fine. Busy, but uh, excited about the prospects of this very unusual season we're looking forward to. I want to get to this unusual season, but we, we can't just hit you hard with, with the season and the coronavirus stuff right out of the box. You know, for me, it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast because, you know, I grew up as a kid. I saw your dad's Providence teams in the 70s with Marvin Barnes and Ernie D and, and Kevin Stakem. And, and then when I finally had a chance to meet him, you know, by the time then he, he was commissioner of the Big East, by the time I was a beat writer here in Syracuse, and uh, he, he was such a great guy and obviously did so much to shape Eastern basketball and especially Syracuse basketball. What do you remember about those early days of the Big East, you know, with this conference that your dad put together? Well, it's, uh, it's almost surreal thinking back on, you know, on it now these, you know, 40 years later with all the incredible success that the programs have had, the conference had, the, the players, the coaches. Um, but mostly I think back about the relationships, Mike. You know, I mean, as you well know, I mean, the conference was built on relationships and um, it sustained it for the longest time because um, the relationships, uh, you know, that my dad had with coaches, with Coach Beheim, Coach Thompson, Coach Carlissimo, you name it right down, the, you know, and then the relationship the coaches had amongst each other. You know, it wasn't always uh, incredible tight friendships. In some cases, it was, it was really uh, bitter rivals, as we know, but incredible level of respect. And um, so I, I really think, you know, about the early years as being uh, kind of intimate in terms of those relationships. You know, 
it, it's gotten so big and the programs have been so successful, um, national championships and all Americans and NBA players, hall of famers indeed. Um, but in those days it was, you know, it was relatively unknown coaches, administrators, you know, players that were good, but not maybe great nationally. And, um, so the relationships were very genuine and, and it was kind of a, as you, I'm sure, think back on a little bit of a mom and pop operation. Like, you know, you know, the first couple of Big East tournaments were in Hartford, Providence, and Syracuse. And, you know, everyone thinks about Madison Square Garden, but it wasn't until the third year that, you know, fourth year that, that they ended up at Madison Square Garden. And, of course, it was incredibly successful. Um, but I guess, you know, it's that kind of like, you know, entrepreneurial business that started with um, people that had great respect and had competed against each other. My dad coached against Syracuse and St. John's and Georgetown and Boston College. So they had these relationships through coaching in the game that um, that helped to build what was really a pretty amazingly successful thing and continues to sustain, you know, programs, um, even in a different conference like Syracuse is now, you know, and so much success had begotten from those early days of the Big East. Your dad was obviously an incredibly successful coach. And then, of course, you know, with his, uh, you know, influence there on the Big East and becoming the league's first commissioner, you were destined to go into college athletics some way, somehow. Why did you choose the, the administrative side rather than coaching? Well, I, you know, it's a, I, I don't know. I mean, as I think back on it exactly, you know, how I've gotten to where I am or why, but I did start in coaching. Actually, um, I started as a graduate assistant coach at Providence College, working for Rick Barnes, um, and was there in various different roles as I kind of came up through through his staff um, for six years. And so, um, as I think back on on what you know where my career has gone since then, that really is the foundation that that helped me um, even to where I am today. I mean, I built relationships with Coach Beheim and, and Jay Wright and, uh, you know, John Thompson and assistant coaches that went on to become head coaches, John Calipari and, you know, uh, Tom Crean, you name it. Like, you know, a lot of those relationships goes back to my early days as an assistant coach. And, of course, I learned a ton about the game um, at the same time um, and even started to get some administrative experience because I was the – the graduate assistant, the part-time assistant, the volunteer restricted earnings assistant that did all of the kind of administrative stuff on campus. So I arranged all the campus recruiting visits. I arranged all the team travel, um, our, our, our basketball camps, um, uh, you know, dealt with ticket issues, you name it. And so I was kind of getting, along with the coaching experience, some administrative experience that at, at bigger places I wouldn't have gotten, but at a small college like Providence, um, you know, I got some of that kind of firsthand administrative experience that led into becoming an athletic director and then a conference office, a staff member, and then, and, and then now here, here at the NCAA. So that, that's kind of, you know, I didn't realize that all those different experiences were preparing me for what I'm doing today, but they all did. And it really did start with, you know, with that assistant coaching experience back in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, and you've had a great career, and now here you are with the NCAA, and I would imagine you're about to uh, encounter your greatest challenge of your career with uh, trying to navigate a season with the coronavirus pandemic still going on. Um, recently, we've seen 
uh, spike in cases around the country, especially in certain regions, but you know, college football games are getting canceled and postponed now. Um, you know, what, what is your uh, you know, level of, of optimism uh, as we get ready to start the season uh, that we're going to be able to, to see this through and complete a season and get to the NCAA tournament? I'm cautiously optimistic still, Mike. I, you know, respectful of, uh, of the pandemic and, and the great challenges um, that we will see during the season that we're seeing play out in college football um, as well. Um, but I am confident because I think we have good protocols in place, first and foremost, medically, you know, for the health and safety of the players and coaches and everyone around the programs. Um, if it wasn't for the availability of testing that we have today um, so that we can test a minimum of three times a week, um, every week uh, of both players, coaches, referees, anyone that's around the, the inner bubble or the, the tier one uh, of teams, then I don't think we'd be ready. I know we wouldn't be ready to, to do this in a safe and responsible way. We did put off, as you know, the start of the season by two weeks. You know, it's important that we have those two weeks. Uh, we've still, you know, just recently kind of finished um, some of the protocols around referees and officiating, some of the challenges there. Um, and, and, and schools have continued to work with their local health um, authorities on, on, on travel ban issues and quarantine issues and, and things that are going to be challenging uh, right through the entire season. But I am cautiously optimistic that, that we will do it. I also am and certainly uh, understanding that we're going to have disruptions. And we're seeing that in college football. We've had uh, games regularly postponed or canceled. Uh, the same will happen in college basketball, unfortunately, but it's the reality of trying to do something, you know, uh, like this in the middle of a pandemic. And so, um, you know, we have to expect the unexpected. Um, I think coaches and players have to be prepared for those kind of uh, interruption and disruptions. And, they kind of take things day to day. But, you know, all those things are in place um, in order to protect the health and safety of everybody involved, too. So you kind of take the, the challenges with the opportunity here to, to have a representative season. Um, I don't know that we're going to have, you know, every team in the country, you know, play the full allotment of 25 to 27 games. I'm, I'm actually quite sure that that's not going to happen in most cases. But if we can have, you know, seasons that are, with minimal disruptions where teams can, you know, basically complete the vast majority of their schedules. And that can be a representative season for the players that leads into the NCAA championship, which I'm very confident we're, we're going to do and, and do well. And I think, you know, it, it's well worth the effort, you know, because the other thing that the NCAA membership decided like for fall sports is that is you can get back this year of eligibility, whether you play one game or you play 25 games. And so, you know, in many ways, it's it's an extra year. Um, it'll be a challenging year that will be unlike any other. Um, but I think, you know, in every conversation I have with coaches, uh, their players want to play, coaches want to coach. Obviously, we want to do that only if we can do it safely and responsibly. But I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we can do that. And, and it's going to be, like I said, a representative season, albeit a different one. How much optimism – uh, rest, or maybe it's how much, how reliant are, are is the season on this window that's being created with most college students leaving campuses around Thanksgiving and probably not returning till late January 
and thereby creating kind of a bubble for the basketball players that are left on campus? I mean, how much is this two-month window uh, critical to the year? Well, it was the key to the decision that was made to, to, to push back the season by 15 days um, and start on November 25, because we knew that uh, when that decision was made in the middle of September, that three quarters at least of all Division I schools will have either ended their first semester in total, or at least, as you note, Mike, will have broken for the break and gone to virtual classes in December and then, and then online exams to finish the semester. So you're dealing with far less populated campuses and much more controlled environment. Um, and, and we think that that provides the optimal opportunity to play games in, in a safe and responsible manner to have the season get off to a successful start. Um, one of the things we, we've learned is that, is that the opportunity for infection is near zero from what we understand around competition itself, right? Like it, it doesn't seem like this disease is spread through athletics competition. It is certainly spread by meals, by interactions socially that happen, you know, outside the athletic facilities, um, parties, you know, interactions with family members, uh, greetings, whatever it may be that then, you know, comes into the athletic facilities or locker room or, or onto the playing field um, in that way. And so that's where the challenges lie. So we think that, you know, to your point, having many weeks between the end of November until mid to late January, in some cases, to play a good portion of the season uh, might provide the greatest opportunity. Unfortunately, it's also overlaid now, which we didn't know in September, by you know a significant spread of the disease nationally. You know, a spike in most every geographic area. Um, so that puts some more challenge around travel. Uh, but I think conferences have been very much focused on trying to limit travel and make it more regional in nature. Um, and of course, you know, we'll have far reduced um, attendance if if there's any fans at all in facilities, and that will help, I think, create an environment that's, that's as most uh, health and safety as we can as well. Hoping that you do get to March and that we're gonna get to a tournament this year, is it going to look the same? Are you still gonna have the first weekend with all the various sites and then the, 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 the second weekend and then Final Four, or is there a chance that you, for lack of a better word, constrict the tournament and, and bring it into you know, smaller areas, or maybe even a bubble? Well, we've been working uh, with the basketball committee for the last couple of months uh, on, on a, every couple of weeks basis we meet, um, which is unusual. They don't usually meet except in July and then again in November in a normal year, but of course this is anything but normal 2020. Um, so we've been meeting regularly with them, doing contingency planning, looking at a lot of different uh, alternatives to make sure that we can have the tournament safely and responsibly and, and successfully. And um, a lot of things you mentioned are things that are being considered. Um, you know, again, we're, we're relying on the guidance of the medical group that we work closely with. Um, we've learned an awful lot from what's going on this summer and this fall with other sports, um, whether it's the NBA and WNBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, college football, the NFL, you name it you know, what's been successful, what's not been so successful. And we've learned from that. And we're, we're applying those lessons to decisions about the 2021 tournament. Um, not there yet, but we're getting closer, I think, to making some decisions. I, I do think the tournament will look a little bit different than it is normally. Um, and and it, it has to probably, given, given the challenges that we're faced with. But 
you know, I've got a, a, the greatest level of confidence on the tournament, actually, even in somewhat comparison to the regular season, because some of the challenges that we're going to see during the regular season travel is, isn't necessarily what we're going to be able to have to do during the tournament. We can make some adjustments for the two to three weeks that we run the tournament um, that are just not as practical or as feasible during a you know, several month regular season. So I, I do think that we have a great opportunity to have a very successful tournament. And, um, you know, we're, we're making, we're getting closer to making some decisions on what those contingencies could look like. Speaking of the tournament, uh, the selection committee never has an easy job. <laughs> and, and this year with non-conference schedules being reduced, and, and who knows, even if you, if the teams have to cancel a game, it could be reduced even further. If conference schedules get reduced, it gives the, the committee less to go on. So I mean, have you already talked to, to the folks on that committee about, you know, what you're going to try to do if all of a sudden you're comparing team A that played 22 or 24 games versus team B that managed to get in 15, but no non-conference? A great challenge. There's no question about it, Mike. Uh, yeah, like you said, challenge every year this year, uh, unlike any other. The good news is we've got a great committee. It's a veteran committee. We only have one new committee member. We've got great leadership with Mitch Barnhart, the athletic director of Kentucky, as the chair. And, uh, and, and they'll do an exceptional job. You know, they're going to have to, you know, work as hard as they ever have in, in watching games and in, in evaluating teams, um, you know, both objectively and subjectively. We know that some of the metrics that we use, including the, the NCA uh, evaluation tool, the net, um, could be compromised somewhat if there are very few non-conference games or, um, or, or none in some cases. Um, but we've identified some other, some other metrics, some other statistical categories that we think can help to evaluate teams for selection and seeding. Um, but as much as anything, it's going to require an awful lot of observation um, a, a lot of deep dive into into resumes that are going to be uh, uh, that are not going to be apples to oranges, as you know. In some cases, they're not going to look exactly the same uh, with the number of games that are played. Um, but at the end of the day, their job is still the same: to select the 36 best teams as at large, and then to seed the field, you know, one through 68. And um, you know, it, it it will likely be imperfect, just like the season may be uh, slightly imperfect in the tournament as well. Um, but I know that they'll do a terrific job and we'll have a, a great tournament. Last question for you, Dan. Um, in terms of the tournament, having lost out on last year's uh, March Madness, financially speaking, how critical is it uh, for the NCAA and its member schools to have a tournament this year? Because, you know, as we've seen with athletic departments dealing with budgets, uh, we've seen a lot of non-revenue sports programs get eliminated. Um, so I just wonder where, you know, you probably have a better idea than I do about where some schools stand financially and how reliant they are on the NCAA tournament. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, irresponsible to say that the, much of the underpinning of uh, the finances of member institutions is from the Division I Men's Basketball Championship. Um, you know, it's over 90% of all the revenue that the NCA brings in and then distributes almost all of it to, to its member institutions. So it is, it is a critical um, event, um, and it is every year. 
um, but we've never experienced having to cancel it and the financial ramifications of that that we experienced last year. So uh, it's, it's vitally important. There's no question about it. Um, but it, it's, it's only important if we can do it in a safe and responsible way, because the most important thing we do is, is, is to look after the student athletes and coaches. And, and the same is true at the conference level and at the institutional level. Um, and and it's, it's with that in mind that we have this confidence that it can happen. And of course, you know, players want to play in it, coaches want to coach it, and, and, and media want to cover it, and, and fans want to watch it. So um, I, I know that it'll be something that everyone is very much anticipating and looking forward to, especially after having it taken away last year, like so many things in 2020. Um, and, and I'm confident that we're going to have a, a terrific tournament and, and a great opportunity to celebrate March Madness again in 21. Well, fingers crossed uh, we can get there and that everyone gets there safely as well. Um, I know I missed out uh, on the tournament last year um, as a college basketball writer. Um, I'm a college basketball fan as well. So it, it, was, uh, it was really sad last year, especially the impact on the student athletes uh, that didn't get it. But uh, so hopefully we do get there, Dan. We're all relying on you. <laughs> we've and, got a great uh, team so I, i'm relying on my team and uh yeah we've got great support from coaches and ad's and commissioners and our television partners and corporate partners so we're, we're, we're going to get it done and we're going to get it done in a very safe and responsible way well i hope so and uh i thank you again for joining us here on the inside syracuse basketball podcast it's been a pleasure dan thank you thanks mike best to all my friends in syracuse be well I want to thank Dan for joining me on the podcast today, and thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, and follow all the Syracuse basketball action this season with complete coverage on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.